0: You are listening to the City on a Hill sermon podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. I said we want to do Back in the Saddle again. It just threw the sound people all all, all all kind of curvy. We're not allowed to play that kind of stuff live streaming or they'll shut us off. And so they had to mute the live stream so that they couldn't hear that and all kinds of stuff. You know, the copyright police are out there, you know, and not to let you even live stream a one minute little tune for the sake of an old man. <laughs> they hate us senior adults. This is senior adult day. They've invited me back. Back in the saddle again. You know, this is the longest I've gone in my entire adult life uh, without teaching in the church um, since I became a pastor at age 25. This is the longest I've gone. And so it's a little built up. I'm a little bit like, uh, uh, you know, Chris Farley doing the motivational speaker. You know, he's, <laughs> he's been down in the basement drinking coffee for four hours. And so he might be a little wired up. So forgive me if I get a little wired up. Uh, you know, I try to keep you up on what God is doing uh, on Facebook, but everything can't be. Um, a lot of good things are happening. One of the things for me is how blessed it is for me as being the founding pastor 38 years ago of this body of believers to be able to come to this point in my life and, and turn it over to leadership that I have full and complete confidence is going to carry it uh, even to greater things in the generation to come. It's been great to watch Derek from 21 years old when he first walked in here as a non-believer. And he soon came to Christ. And just to watch his development over these years and be able to give input into his life. And to watch him the way he has just taken leadership. He's, he's, he preaches great. Uh, I just am so confident that greater things are ahead. And everything I'm doing now in my life is really things that were fleshed out right here in this church. Uh, I don't know anything but what we've learned together over the last 38 years here. And so as I go out around the country uh, doing what I do, um, it's really I'm just talking about City on a Hill and the things that you've taught me and the things that we all learned together. Uh, I was honored and privileged last week to get to spend a day with Max Bukato and have him agree to sit for an on-camera interview for the Fearless series for men that I'm now producing. And I want to tell you, Max is the real deal. He's a very humble man. Uh, they call him America's pastor. He has every reason in the world to be so full of himself, and he just is not. He just is not. He is what you see, and he's become a friend. I have his cell phone number, as a matter of fact, so uh, I can just call him anytime I want to. <laughs> so me and Max are like this. I say, Maxie, buddy, how's it going? <laughs> anyway, just a great, good man, a good man. Um, something really big did happen this week. Um, Ministry Safe, which is a uh, company that helps churches uh, learn about prevention of sexual abuse in the church, started by Greg and Kim Love, both attorneys, uh, had done litigation for child abuse cases for decades for Long time before they started Ministry Safe, now they go in and they train volunteer workers and children and youth areas and ushers and everybody about the problems of sexual abuse and and how it can happen in a church environment and how to prevent that and how to be aware of that kind of stuff and they've trained about 25,000 churches now and Greg told me that they're adding about 400 churches a month that are coming on to Ministry Safe uh, and learning how to prevent child sexual abuse. <clears throat> Uh, When families are on the church campus and Greg called me a couple of weeks ago and said, James, would you come along and and collaborate with Ministry Safe? Because what you do is you train churches in how to do care for those who are survivors of sexual abuse. And we've been doing this for 30 years here. That's what the Fearless series for women that I produced is all about. And, and he said, uh, I want that because that's, that's the other side of the coin of what we do. And we don't know anything about that. We're, we're attorneys and we do prevention and we do background checks. But we need somebody that knows how to do this in a local church. And so he asked if we would collaborate. Well, the state of Kentucky this last week, the Kentucky Baptist General Convention, <clears throat> that is kind of the overseeing arm of all of the Baptist churches in the state of Kentucky, asked Greg and I to come out there on the 28th of this month of... September to train the the state staff in prevention and then all, my side of it in how do you care for survivors of sexual abuse uh, in the church and um, then they've asked us the next week to travel we're going on tour uh, four cities in the state of Kentucky four regions to where pastors and churches Baptist churches can come for training about prevention but also about how to do uh, compassionate care for those who are su- survivors of sexual abuse. And so the doorway is just kind of opening here. For 30 years, we did this alone, didn't we? For 30 years, we, we did this kind of work and we, we cared for survivors, we cared for abuse victims, for trauma victims, and, and God taught us a whole lot. And now, at this particular point, what I get to do is go out there and take everything that we've learned, everything that women have taught me, and, and train and equip churches and pastors in how to do that effectively in their church. So thank you, uh, City on a Hill. Uh, for all the years and back in the saddle again. Take your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. There's only one verse this morning. And as you're turning there, because I know that you all are doing that, I know you all have Bibles in your lap and you're just ready to go after it, turn in your smartphone, I guess. It's probably a better way to say it. When I became a Christian at the age of 18, I was incredibly euphoric. Uh, Never before in my life, had I had a sense of any purpose except where I was going to get my next hike from. And uh, some of you can relate with that, that experience. But now I had a real meaning and purpose, an eternal purpose in life. I never understood that life could have meaning. And so I hit the ground running, basically, at the age of 18, right off of the streets, living the Christian life. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to live the Christian life. And it wasn't very long into this journey that I've discovered a very startling truth that the Christian life ain't easy. In fact, it's downright hard. And over the last 50 years, because I'm 68 now and I became a Christian when I was 18, hard to believe, uh, over the last 50 years, I've come to realize there are two reasons why the Christian life is not easy. First of all, because the demands of the Christian life are actually impossible. And when you think about it, it's not just hard to live the Christian life. It's downright impossible. It is impossible because the Christian life places impossible demands upon us. In fact, it's called the Christian life, which literally means Christ's life, that we are to live out the life of Christ. Now, I submit to you, that's impossible, right? So let's do a quick survey and just see. Matthew 6, Jesus said, don't worry about anything. Take no thought for tomorrow what you will eat or what you will drink or what you will wear. And I, my question is, how are you doing on that one? <laughs> You're knocking it out of the park? You see, that's not difficult. That's impossible. That is impossible for me. I don't have the resources you see, I set out when I became a Christian right off the streets at the age of 18, knowing I was saved, knowing I was forgiven, knowing I was redeemed, knowing I knew Jesus. I had my Bible on my arm, my honk if you love Jesus bumper sticker, and people honked. I still wanted to flip on the bird. <laughs> and I thought, well, that ain't right. That ain't right. That would have been the old me. And so, why is that still there? And so, the, dis- the discovery of that truth led me to the second one. Not only is the Christian life impossible, I don't have the resources to do it. My resources are totally inadequate to live the Christian life. It's impossible for me because I ain't got what it takes. Let me put it this way, I ain't man enough. I'm not tough enough, there is nothing about me that is good enough to live the Christian life. So to say that I'm going to live the Christian life is tantamount to me waking up one day and saying, you know what, I'm gonna live the life of a billionaire. And it's not going to be much past breakfast, maybe lunch is the latest. I'm going to figure out there's a problem with that. I can say I'm going to get out, live the life of a billionaire. I'm going to fly around in my personal helicopter. I'm going to buy up businesses and create great corporations and I'm going to dine on caviar and ribeye. And it wouldn't be very long that no matter how much I wanted to do that, no matter how hard I tried, I discovered I can't do it because I don't have the resources to do it. But then... I come to the Christian life and I go, well, you know, this Christian life is not only hard, it's impossible, and I realize that I don't have the resources, yet I'm supposed to live the Christian life. How in the world does this happen? And I come to the book of Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, one of the first verses of Scripture that I memorized when I first became a Christian, and it says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, in that text, we get an explanation of this impossible life, this life that I cannot live. And we also get a secret into how it can happen. What kind of life is it? Well, first of all, Paul tells us that it's an executed life. Notice, he says, I have been crucified with Christ Now, crucifixion, folks, was a form of Roman execution. If the Romans didn't like you, they nailed you to a cross. That's just what they did. And so they didn't care for Jesus, so they nailed him to a cross. And what, what I wanna to say to you is that you can't be a Christian without dying. To live as a Christian, you must first be executed. You must first be crucified. Jesus indicated that in John chapter 12, verse 24. He said, truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it can bring forth new life. Now Jesus is giving us a picture of nature. A seed goes into the ground and if it is going to live, it must first die. Before it can bear fruit, it has to die. And he's using that as an illustration of the life that he's calling to us. We have to die in order that we may be able to live this executed life. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. Now, two things about this executed life. The first one is that he is referring to an actual accomplished past event. Paul says, I have been. In other words, he's talking about a seminal moment. In history, in time when Paul was crucified. Not I will be crucified, but I've already done it. It's in the past. It is an accomplished fact. Now, what do you event do you think that Paul was referring to when he says he was, had been crucified? Don't say Jesus, which is the Sunday school answer. That won't work. That won't fix it. What event do you think Paul is talking about? How about the Damascus Road? When he's on his way to persecute Christians as a Pharisee and the resurrected Christ appears to him and he falls on his knees in submission before the resurrected Christ and he is transformed and he is changed and he goes on from there to become a promoter of Christ rather than a persecutor of Christ and a preacher of Christ. That was a seminal moment. On that moment, on that road, Paul was crucified with Christ. He called it a death, an execution so that there could be, like the seed, there could be a rebirth. In fact, Jesus said about that in John chapter 3. He said, unless you were born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. You've got to die and you got to come to a new life. And so it was by execution that Jesus paid the penalty for my sin and Paul's sin and your sin. And so when I bowed before him at the age of 18 in a genuine decision that I wanted to turn my life over to Jesus Christ, what I did that moment in time was I chose execution. I chose Jesus' cross, and I said I want Jesus' cross to become my cross. And the scripture says that when I did that, that my sin was nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ. Are you getting that? Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. Jesus died for me, and then I had to die with him. So, folks, this is why it's important that you understand. This is why the Scripture never teaches that we, we don't evolve into being Christians. You don't just, you know, I've gone to church enough now that I figure I must be a Christian. Like, I was born in a barn, so I'm a cow. You don't do enough churchy things to evolve into one day, well, I guess I'm a Christian. You don't do enough good things. You have to, listen, you have to choose the cross. You have to choose the cross of Jesus Christ. His cross must become your cross. You see, Jesus did choose the cross, folks. The cross wasn't an accident. The cross wasn't something that took Jesus by surprise. As I've heard a lot of people say, well, you know, wow, God sent Jesus to teach us how to live and, and then they crucified him. No, that's wrong. God didn't t- send Jesus to teach us how to live. We can't live the Christian life. God sent Jesus to die on a cross so he could live his life through us. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. So the cross is not a good plan gone bad. Jesus went willing to be to the cross. When Jesus had been arrested and he was standing before Pontius Pilate because the Jews wanted Jesus crucified because he was stirring things up and Pontius Pilate said, you know, I don't want anything to do with this. I don't want to mess with this. He's just a Jewish rabbi. This is their deal and besides that, he's he's kind of a good guy. He does good things, you know. He heals people and stuff. Why would I want to crucify him? So Pilate really wanted to get off of the, you know, get away from this thing and so Jesus wouldn't defend himself. Jesus wouldn't say anything. John 19, Pilate says, Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you? Buddy, wake up. You better get with it. You better help me out here because I have the power to crucify you. And Jesus replied to him. He said, you'd have no power over me at all except that which has been given to you from above. (laughs) In other words, Jesus said, look. It's not you that's gonna crucify me. It's me that's gonna crucify me. You have no authority over me but that which I and my Father have given you. This is not your plan. This is the Father's plan. And so listen, everyone who is genuinely a Christian must have been crucified with Christ. You must also, as he chose a cross, you must come to a place in your life where you say, I want to be crucified with Jesus Christ. Amen? And it happens when you choose Christ. When you bow in faith and in submission to him. So he's talking about an actual past event. But then he's also talking about an appropriated daily experience. So so get this. I have been crucified with Christ. That's my salvation moment. That's the moment I crawl up on the cross and say, I want to die on the cross where Jesus died for me so I choose that cross for salvation but then the scripture says that I must daily choose a cross for what we call sanctification and that is this experience of living out the Christian life of growing in Christ and of moving forward in being conformed into his image in fact before Jesus was even crucified he said to the disciples and this freaked them out Luke chapter 9 23 that's New Testament language right freak out is New Testament language <laughs> The disciples created that term because Jesus freaked them out every day. Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, because the disciples said, well, we're following Jesus, we're disciples of Jesus. He said, if any of you wants to follow me, you must deny yourself and take up your cross daily. Now, that's before Jesus had even gone to the cross, and he's already talking about a cross. He says, you can't follow me unless you take up a cross and follow me, and you must do it Daily taking up that cross. So not only the one-time expense, but every single day. So you see, Jesus was indicating that the Christian life is an executed life from the beginning to the very end. So Paul comes along later and writes after his Damascus road experience of crucifixion when he chose the cross, and then he admits, he says, you know what, I got to choose this cross every day. He said, 1531, 1 Corinthians 10, he says, I die daily. He's not talking about being saved over again every day. That's once and for all. He's talking about every day. This Christian life requires that I die. This Christian life requires that today I choose a cross, that I make the decision to live today as an executed person, as a crucified person every day. You see, when I fail in the expression of Christ in my life, I can't blame anyone else. I can't blame anyone else. It's because I failed to choose the cross that day. It's because I failed to choose a cross in that moment, in that experience, and in that event. It is a day-by-day, moment-by-moment, second-by-second decision. I choose the cross here. I choose the cross here. I choose the cross here. And when I don't choose the cross is when I fail. I love Romans 6.11. Whereafter after Paul has said, if we have died with Christ, okay, he's talking about this execution, this crucifixion. If we have died with Christ, then we are no longer slaves to sin. So you see, when we died with Christ, he took the penalty of our sin, and so he set us free from that. So I'm not a slave to sin anymore. So then he says, therefore... Consider yourselves to be dead to sin. He said, it is true. You've been executed. You're dead to sin. So every day, he says, consider yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, the New Testament was written in Greek, and I kind of like Greek. I kind of majored in it at Baylor University. I love the language because it's so, it's so, there's so much beauty in the original language of the New Testament. This word, consider, In the Greek language, historically, in Greek literature, this word was used as an accounting term. Accountants, to consider. It means to look at the books. King James translates it, reckon. Reckon yourselves to be dead to sin. Because King James was a southerner. (laughs) I reckon to be dead to sin. Reckon yourselves. He says, look at it. You are... If you've been crucified with Christ, you're already dead to sin. So daily, look at the books, open the books, do an accounting, and look what's in your debit side and what's in your asset side. He says, look at the books. Well, there ain't nothing in the debit side. That's right, because you're dead to sin. You owe sin nothing. What's over here? All the assets of Christ Jesus. He says, now look at the books, buddy. It's true. Now you have to accept it. Now you have to be willing to look at it. So every day, look at the books, open them up, and look. Are you a slave to sin? Well, no, there's nothing over here. That's right, you're set free. And then live that way. I love the way that Paul says it in Colossians. He carries this another step, Colossians chapter two. He says, and you were once dead in your trespasses and sins, right? So we had the penalty of death because we were in our sin, but then when we got executed with Christ, we're no longer dead in sin, we're dead to sin, right? Now we're not the slave of sin. We were dead in it, but now we're dead to it. We're not the slave of it. He says, and God made you alive together with Christ, with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Folks, that is such an incredible verse of scripture. He lays it all out. He says, look, you're dead to sin, so open the books, consider yourself, look at it. God has said it. There's nothing in the debit column. It is all in the asset column. So therefore, how did that happen? It happened because Jesus, when he died on the cross, he took that certificate of debt that you owed to God and you owed to sin, which was your own death, and he nailed it to the cross and then stamped paid in full. So look at that. Recognize who you are and then carry it out. Folks, I actually paid my college debt. I know, it's shocking. I actually paid it. You know how long it took me? It took 10 years of my life. I had no family support. I went to a private university. I worked three jobs. I took out loans and I paid those loans back for 10 solid years. We were still paying it back after I got married to my wife and into our family and into my first pastorate in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I was still writing the government a check every month and I was making $17,000 a year living in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. But we paid, I paid my college debt. And when I made the last payment, I didn't even really know it was over with until I got in the mail from the College Coordinating Board. Remember the College Coordinating Satan lives at the College Coordinating Board. <laughs> I got a, a receipt that was stamped paid in full. And I did a happy dance. I wanted to do my David dance out in the middle of the street. <laughs> David danced naked before the Lord. My wife wouldn't let me do it. I was set free. They had no power over me. Now get this, folks. When you owe, you are under the power of the one you owe. Your credit card, they have power over you. Your mortgage, that bank has power over you. You are under the power of the one that you owe. Jesus said, When you are executed with Christ on the cross, he stamps the debt paid in full. You owe sin nothing, nothing, you are free. So live like it, consider it. Look at the books. So when I chose Christ, my sin was nailed to his cross and it was stamped paid in full. So now I'm supposed to get up every day, he says, and look at the books. Take the first thing, look at the books. Is your debt paid? Yes. Are you a slave to sin? No. Then live like it. Choose the cross today. Choose execution today. Don't go out and act like a slave to sin. Choose execution today. Take up that cross and carry. It. let it be a reminder that you are no longer the slave to sin. Are, are you getting this? Good old Baptist preaching is clearing the space and throwing a fit, folks. And this built up in me for a while, so i got to get it out. <laughs> it, is an, it is an executed life. Now, that's the longest point. i got two more, but both of them can come into the space of death. It's just that one, okay? You believe that? Right, okay. <laughs> Not only that, but it is an exchanged life. He says, okay, I've been crucified with Christ. And then the text goes on. It is no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. Okay, if I'm dead, I can't live. So here I am. Somebody else is living. Christ lives in me. So that term, Christ in me, is repeated all through the New Testament. But it also says that I am in Christ. If I am in Christ, Christ is in me. And the in word, that preposition means in the sphere of. It means to be in the covering of. So I am moved out of the sphere of death and sin into the sphere of Christ and Christ has come into me because I have come into Christ. I am covered with Christ. So I am in Christ and Christ is in me. So Romans 8.1 says there is now no condemnation for those who are where? In Christ, why? Because he took my condemnation on the cross. Colossians 1.27, it is Christ in you that is your what? Hope of glory. You ain't got Christ in you, you got no hope. You got no hope of glory. It's Christ in you that is your hope of glory. So if you are in Christ, Christ is in you. Now hang on to this because this is important. We're talking about living this impossible life. So the goal of execution on the cross in salvation and the goal of daily choosing the cross is so that Christ who is in me can live through me. Do you get that? You see, if I'm living, Christ isn't living through me. He can't. I'm in his way. So I have to die that day. I have to choose a cross that day so that he who is in me, who is my hope of glory, can begin to live through me. So, to boil it down the Christian life is not only an executed life, but it's an exchanged life because then he gives us his life to live through us. But for that to happen, I have to choose. No, no, I? I have to choose a cross. I chose a cross at salvation, now I have to choose a cross every day of my life. And I can testify the days that I die are the days that he lives. The days that I live are the days that he dies. There's not room for both of us to live. So if I'm living it that day, he's not. If I die that day, he set free to live. I love the story, and I don't know if it's, if it's uh, true. It may be anecdotal, but I choose to believe that it's true. By the way, Christ died for me so that he could give his life to me so he could live his life through me. This is the pattern of the New Testament. This is the pattern of the Christian life. He gave his life for me so he could give his life to me, be in me, so he could live his life through me. Now, the famous artist, sculptor, actually, he wasn't really a painter. He was famous for sculpting, although he was commissioned to do the Sistine Chapel, laying on his back for several years, painting the Sistine Chapel. He wasn't really a painter by trade. He was a sculptor, Michelangelo. Out of West Texas, we called him Michelangelo. I think the correct uh, Italian translation is Michelangelo. Michelangelo finished a sculpture of what he envisioned King David would look like. It took him three years. He started in 1501, he finished in 1504. Three years. The statue of David that is on display in Florence, Italy, is 17 feet tall. It's carved out of a single piece of granite. And he's buck naked. Because back then they, they did all their sculpting and painting stuff buck naked. I saw a picture as I was doing some research this week of a group of nuns who were at the foot of the statue of David, he's 17 feet high, and they're taking a selfie with a stick. And they're getting David from about here down. And I thought, when they get back to the nunnery, they're gonna be shocked at what is just right over their head. But anyway, Hey, I don't write the news, folks. I just report it, okay? So the story goes, though, that one time someone came to Michelangelo, and I've never seen the statue. I've been in Rome twice. I've been all over Italy. We, we went to Vienna, went to Florence, but we just didn't make it to Florence. I wanted to see this statue, but never have. Seen pictures of it. Uh, but the story is told that after David was unveiled totally, that someone asked him the question, how, because David is so lifelike, the statue is so lifelike, said, how did you carve David out of that single rock of granite? And Michelangelo is said to have responded, I didn't carve David out of the rock. I saw David in the rock, and with these tools, I let him out. Now, I I hope that story is true because that is a true artist that can see the finished product before there's anything that is done. My wife is like that. She can see the finished product as an artist before it's even done. And I go, just show me the thing and I'll tell you whether I like it or not. (laughs) But Michelangelo said, I saw David in that stone and I have these tools. And with these tools, I simply let David out of that stone. Now, that is exactly a picture of what God wants to do in the Christian life. Because, you see, I can't live the Christian life because it's impossible. I don't have the resources to live the Christian life. That's why I have to be executed. I have to choose a cross. And then I have to choose a cross every day. And that allows me, when I choose that cross that day, for to exchange the life of Christ who is in me for his life to be exchanged for mine, for him to be free to let himself out and show himself and so it is not me who is living the Christ, christian life when i have moments of brilliance and actually accomplish it it is jesus that is in me because i chose to die in that situation or i chose to die in that moment i chose to carry a cross in that moment and the days that i do is when he lives the days that i don't is when he doesn't so it's an executed life it's an exchanged life thirdly it's an empowered life and then we got 15 14 minutes and i'll get or did He goes on after saying, okay, I've been crucified to Christ. It's no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. Okay, got it. And then he gets practical. Here's where we bring it down to where the rubber meets the road. He says, and the life that I now live in the flesh, in other words, in this physical body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, this is where it gets practical. Okay, so we've talked theologically so far. Okay, God has declared that when I gave my life to Christ, I died on the cross with Jesus. And then he says, and Jesus now lives in you, so daily, choose that cross, choose to die, so Jesus can start living. Okay, well, the ultimate question is, okay, James, that sounds great in theory. How do I do that? What are the nuts and bolts? How does that work? Paul says, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me Gave himself for me. So the answer is faith. And you go, I thought you were gonna get practical. Faith, is that the answer? Yes. It's the only answer. But understand this, folks. Faith, most of us, most people, most even believers don't really even understand what faith is. Faith is as practical as it can get. Look at the text. Flesh, first of all, Paul says, I'm still living here on earth. In other words, this ain't heaven yet. You know, in heaven, I'm gonna live the Christian life perfectly, right? How do I do this now? Well, I gotta die. I gotta die daily. I gotta let him live through me as I die daily. How do I do that? By faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What is Faith. 38 years were not wasted. (laughs) If you people that have been here that long only learned that my life has been worthwhile. Faith is not something you dream up and then coax God into doing it. Faith is not wanting something so bad that you can just believe it until God has to give it, whether he wants to or not, which is the definition of faith that you hear preached by the idiots out on television a lot. That's not faith. Faith is taking God at his word. Faith is God says this, I will believe it and I will do it. I will act upon it. Now, hang on here, folks. Faith is the engine that drives the executed and the exchanged life. It is faith that empowers the Christian life. Romans 10, 17, Paul says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? The Word of God. In other words, I have to hear the Word of God. If I don't hear what the Word of God is, I can't act in faith, because I don't know what the Word of God is, so therefore I can't take God at His word and act on it. But, so someone has to tell me the Word of God. That's where he says, There needs to be somebody that tells that. Okay? At that time, Word of God was not written down. It was being written. At the time, and now we have it. And so he says, faith comes by hearing. When you look at the word of God, God said, do this. You go, okay, so what is faith? Faith, he says, well, God said it. I believe it, so I'll act upon it. That is faith. That's as practical as you can get. That's where the rubber meets the road. God's word says this. Okay, I know what God said. I hear what God said. I choose to act upon what God said That is the biblical definition of faith. The book of James says, faith that is without works is dead. Do you know what that means? It means if someone says, You know what, I have faith in God, but you're not doing what He said, that's dead. That is not faith, that's roadkill. That faith is dead. What you are calling faith is dead because faith isn't just hearing God's word. Faith is carrying it out. Faith is taking a risk. God said, do this. God, that's risky. He said, I know it is. That's why I call it faith. So I said it. Will you trust me? Will you act upon it? That is faith. And if you say, well, I have faith, but you don't have the action to back it up, the scripture says, well, that's roadkill. That's dead. That's not faith. Faith is when I hear I trust and I act. Are you with me? It is faith. It is taking God at his word. It is acting out his word. That is the energizing power for the executed and the exchanged life. Now, I'm going to close with three assets that God has commanded us to access as Christians. Three assets that each one of us must Access by faith. Because God has commanded us to do these things. The question is, are you going to do it? You can hear it, but are you going to do it? To live the exchanged and the executed life. First of all is his word. He has given us his word. You can't act on faith if you don't know what his word says, can you? Because faith is taking him at his what? And if you don't know his word, if you don't understand his word, you can't live the life of faith. Because the life of faith is not what you dream up. The life of faith is what God has said. And I go, okay, by faith, I'm going to take it. You're God. You said it. You'll do it. So I'm going to do it. That is faith. There is no living the executed and the exchanged life without God's word. It is the foundation of faith. That's why in 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul said to Timothy that he's to be diligent to present himself as a workman to God who has no need to be ashamed. What does that look like? He says, accurately handling the word of truth. He said, present yourself diligently. You're in the word of God. You're studying the word of God. You're understanding the word of God. You believe the word of God. You know the word of God. And you're rightly handling the word of God. You're acting it out. You will be a workman that has no need to be ashamed. You see... If, folks, if you can't handle the word of God, you have no foundation for faith. You cannot live the Christian life, the executed, exchanged life, without an understanding, a knowledge, a deep and abiding knowledge of the word of God. Thus, we come to the problem. By the way, do you know that Jesus prayed that you would know God's word? and that God's word would change you? Jesus prayed it. The question is, is the prayer being answered in your life? It's in John 17, which we call the high priestly prayer, that before the cross, Jesus prayed to the Father for the disciples that were there. And But Jesus then specifically said, and those who will follow them. All down through Christian history, Jesus is praying for those, praying for those disciples and then you and me. And this is what he said, Father, sanctify them in your truth, your word is truth. That's a prayer of Jesus for you. Father, make them like me through your truth, through your word. How are you going to live? How is Jesus going to live the Christian life through you if you don't even know his word? Because you can't, so therefore you can't take his word as it is and act it out. Jesus said, It's going to be by your word, Father. It's going to be your truth, Father, by which they are going to be sanctified. He's commanded us to rightly divide the word of truth. The question is, is that what you are doing? You see, here's the problem. We never abandoned Sunday school, Bible study. We never abandoned. You know why? Because we believe it's important. Churches today, you, you go, I go all over the country, and most of the churches I go to have no classrooms. It's a big auditorium. They put all of their eggs in the big meeting the big worship service, and man, it's classy, it's Hollywood quality, but there's no classrooms for Bible study classes. We, we decided when we built this building, we're not gonna do that. We have two Sunday schools and two services. Why? Because the Word of God is the foundation of the Christian life. And if you don't know the Word of God, by studying with other believers and you don't know how to study the word of God, which is what you learn in those classes, one of the things you learn in those classes, you cannot live a life of faith because you don't even know what God has said. And guess what? Less than half of you go to a Bible study class on Sunday. Less than half of our adults The majority of the people at City on the Hill come for one service and then leave while God's people are going to classrooms studying his word. And you wonder why you can't live a life of faith. You don't even know what you're supposed to do. All you know is what some idiot on television said to you. Or all you know is how you interpret what Derek said on Sunday morning, which was totally not what he said. (laughs) And if you had known the word of God, you would know it's not what he said. Do you understand what I'm saying here? How in the world are you gonna walk out of this building and live the life of faith? You can't do it. Why? Because you can't handle the truth. (laughs) Folks, I'm gonna piss you off and let Derek (laughs) clean up the parts. (laughs) Because I'm getting in my truck after this and I'm going home. And he's going to call me Monday and say, James, what in the world did you do Sunday? (laughs) I don't know. I just preached. (laughs) The power of the word of God, folks, get serious. That's the starting point. That's where sanctification begins. Second of his, the tool he's given us is the indwelling Holy Spirit. I got to do this quickly. Babies are crying. We got to get out of here. (laughs) You see, the indwelling Holy Spirit is the power of faith and of Christian living. All true believers have the Spirit of God living within us who raised Jesus from the dead. Here's the problem, though. Are you accessing the power of the Spirit of God? What is it that keeps us from accessing the power of the Spirit of God to give us the ability to take God at his word and act it out? What is it that keeps us from accessing that unconfessed sin, folks? And so we go through our life and we know kind of what God's word says, but we're not really all that interested in following it out because I'd rather chase a skirt or chase a pair of pants or do something else, whatever I want to do today. And so I'm doing this and, and I get caught up in this mess and, and I never bring that to the Father. I never confess that. or I never, I never do these other things here and, and God is going, well, what about my spirit that's dwelling within you? Well, I'm just throwing cold water on your spirit, Lord. I'm just going to quench your spirit. Ephesians 4.30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you along with all malice. You know what he's saying? Keep short accounts with God. Because when you don't keep short accounts with God, what you're doing is you're just throwing water on the power of the Holy Spirit to move you to take God at his word to live it out. See, we daily take up a cross. We daily choose to take up a cross and part of that taking up the cross is to keep short accounts with God. God, I just blew it. I need your forgiveness. I did not honor you in what I just did or what I just said. Oh, may just blow it off. A little mistake. Never get around to keeping short accounts with God so we're just building up. You know, it's like taking the stick of dynamite and dropping it in a bucket of water and lighting a match and can't figure out why it doesn't go Bang. It can't. It's drenched. It's quenched. That's the Holy Spirit. That's what unconfessed sin, when we don't keep short accounts with God, moment by moment, day by day, then it just grieves and quenches the Holy Spirit. And it is the Holy Spirit that empowers faith. So, he's given us his word. Know the word. He's given us his indwelling Holy Spirit. Keep short accounts with God so the Holy Spirit is not squelched. And thirdly, he's given us community the family of faith. Do you know how many one another's there are in the Bible? Somebody counted them one time, depending on whether you count the ones that just appear once or some of them appear many times, there's anywhere from 30 to 50 one another's in the Bible. One another's are God's way of telling us that the Christian life is a team sport. It is not designed and it cannot be lived in isolation. So the dude that says, well, nature's my church, you stupid idiot. You just demonstrated that you don't have a clue what the Bible even says. You're just going over fishing on Sunday. Why don't you just be honest and tell it? You don't have relationships with God's people that you're in accountability with. I don't need all that stuff. Well, you're an idiot. You can't live the Christian life in isolation. Forgive me, Lord, for calling them idiots. God says, well, if it's true, it's not sin. (laughs) I don't know. Are you getting this? One another's, one another's. What are those one another's? It tells us that the Christian life, folks, the only way that you can live the executed and the exchanged life if it's done in community is how God designed it. So the one another's go like this. Love one another, pray for one another, encourage one another, exhort one another, bear one another's burdens, be devoted to one another, honor one another, build one another up. Comfort one another, pray for one another, love one another, speak the truth to one another. And I didn't even give them all to you. You think by coming to church once a week and then going out and really having no community with God's people other than that, that you're going to walk out the Christian life? Well, how are you going to love one another if you're not connected? How are you going to pray for one another? How are you going to to exhort one another? How are you going to bear one another's burdens if you don't even know what the burdens others are carrying are? This is the Christian life. It's a team sport. It's done in community. So living the life is living an executed life. It's choosing the cross for salvation. Some of you maybe have not done that. You just figure you're a Christian because you've gone to church a few times. Sorry, thanks for playing, but that's wrong. You've not crawled upon the cross and said, "I want to die with Jesus by faith. I want to die." That's the executed life. It's in the past event. And then it's a daily choice. Choose a cross every day. And then allow by keeping short accounts with God the Holy Spirit, to exchange the life of Christ for the day you choose choose that cross. And then get in community with other God's people and learn, let them love you. Let let you learn how to love them. Let them encourage you. You encourage them. Let them bear your burdens. You bear their burdens. This is a two-way street here, folks. It isn't happening without community. The Christian life is an executed life. You gotta die. The Christian life is an exchange life. Only Jesus can live the Christian life. You can't do it and I can't do it. The Christian life is an empowered life and the only way it happens is by faith. I got to take a risk and I'm going to take God at his word. He says do this by darn I'm going to do it and trust him to do what he said he'll do. But first, you got to keep short accounts with God and you got to take some risks. Let's pray together. Father, Thank you for your word that is really so clear when we just seek to understand it. It's not out there in the clouds, it's right down here on earth where life is lived. And we confess to you today that we fail so often, but why we fail is when we reject the cross for that day. We say, no, I'm going to put the cross in the closet today and I'm going to live today. And we fail miserably. Forgive us, Father, also for someone in this room today who has never been executed, never had a Damascus Road, never came to that place where they submitted and crawled up on the cross of Christ and said, I want to die so that you can live. May you, by your Holy Spirit, open their hearts to that decision, that choice today. For we pray this in the majestic name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen, amen. Thank you for letting me rant and rake. <clears throat> God bless you. I'll see you in October. <laughs> I, think I'm on the, I think I'm on the docket for one Sunday in October. I mean, Derek wants a day off. What's up with that? You've only been doing this six weeks, Bubba. <laughs> no, he needs it, and I'm here to give it.